Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Daniel as we continue our journey through this book. We're starting chapter 2 today. We'll have three messages on chapter 2 today and the next two Sundays as we progressively work through Nebuchadnezzar and his dream. Today we'll be looking at the first 13 verses in Daniel chapter 2. Allow me to read this for us. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. And so they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream." and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, There is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing for of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, as we reflect upon Nebuchadnezzar's dream and really his reaction to this dream, uh, show us, Father, how the gospel really does make a difference in our lives as we respond to, at times, a very hostile culture that has deep, deep insecurities. And we would ask this in Christ's name, amen. Hey, let me ask you a question. Do, do you remember dreams? I normally don't, but there's one dream that I had a number of years ago that I remember vividly uh, today. There was a period of time where I struggled with sleep issues. And so I went to my physician, 
and told him about it, and he dutifully uh, prescribed a sleeping pill for me, and he gave me a sample, which physicians uh, very kindly do, and he said, try this sleeping pill, and if it doesn't work, there's some other options. I didn't exactly know what to think about that, but nonetheless, I took the pill, and I went home that evening, and at bedtime, I popped that pill And I was anticipating a really great night's rest. It was the worst night I have ever experienced. I dreamed the entire night from eyelids closed to eyelids open. And at one point, to my poor wife's shock, I sat straight up in bed screaming, at the top of my voice. I had a dream. And it was not good. It was a nightmare. And I dreamed that I was hanging from a big beam in a large room like a warehouse. Just holding on to the beam hanging. And all of a sudden, this really disfigured, hideous face came down right in my face, nose to nose, and I just screamed and scared Renee half to death. I have no idea why I dreamed that dream. I have no idea why I still remember that dream. But there are two things. I responded by throwing those pills away. And secondly... I remember that dream as if I dreamed it last night. Isn't that interesting? Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And it made an impression on him. And we don't know if it was a series of dreams over a series of nights. But the way he reacted instructs us about the way culture is reacting to their insecurities in our day. And I believe the gospel speaks to how we should respond when culture reacts out of insecurities with anger towards the church. And as we look at these first 13 verses of Daniel, this mor- Daniel 2 this morning, we're not really getting into the content of the dream. We'll do that in the third sermon that I'll preach in a couple of weeks. But today we're focused on how Nebuchadnezzar, rea- and I call it a reaction, not a response. He reacted in a very powerful and profound way to this nightmare that he had that basically told him this, Nebuchadnezzar, you may think that you have the biggest and best and baddest kingdom that any man could create, but it is going to crumble, and my kingdom, says God, will stand and last forever. No wonder Nebuchadnezzar awoke in a panic from a dream such as that. Because what we'll see as we work through the passage today is, from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, his kingdom was all that he had. And the dream showed him 
that it would not last. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's dream was not induced by prescription medication, as was mine. Something more profound. It was a dream that was given to him by God himself to show Nebuchadnezzar the future. So what I want to do this morning is, is as, as I said, to, to begin by, by looking at the, the setting or, or the context of this dream. And the first thing that we want to look at, by the way, we'll, we'll look at the setting, the context, just a few things that I think are distinctive and interesting about, about this dream. And then secondly, we'll look at Nebuchadnezzar's reaction to the dream and kind of work through the text. And then thirdly, I want to ask the question, what difference does Jesus make in our life as we respond to culture that is reacting to their insecurity? So that's our, our pathway today. So the first thing, as we look at the setting or the context, I want us to consider the time frame of this dream. And you'll note that in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, he had these dreams. We know that Daniel has, and his three friends, finished their three-year education program that we talked about when we looked in chapter 1. And we know by the end of chapter 1 that that three-year education program had come to an end because Nebuchadnezzar, in the last part of chapter 1, as you remember from last week, praised Daniel and his three friends for their ability and level of learning and abilities in all things Babylonian. He, He honored them. And so we've got a three-year education program that we're told in chapter 1, verse 1, began in the first year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Remember the first year of his reign when he besieged uh, Jerusalem was 605 B.C. And so now you would think that after a three-year education program, we would be in 604 B.C., but the reality is we are in 603 B.C. So some commentators want to suggest that there should be doubt in the validity of Daniel because of this little one-year issue with the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign and Daniel and his three friends finishing a three-year education program. So that's kind of a problem that scholars tend to think about. But the resolution is very clear. The, The second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign is began in the March, April of 603 B.C., And when Hebrews would date things, they would often take a fraction of a year and understand it as an entire year. So we tend to think in 12-month periods, they seem to take a fraction and just think it's a year. And so it's very easy then to see that from from, uh, 605 B.C. to 603 B.C. that uh, Daniel and his three friends' three-year education program will fit nicely in that time frame if we understand that the Hebrews dated understanding fractions of years being a whole year, okay? So just wanted to throw that out to you as just a little bit of information that might help you have a little bit more confidence in the book of Daniel. But the second thing is probably more interesting in that, beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, we find the statement, the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, Wait a minute, I thought the Old Testament was in Hebrew, and most of it is, but there are a few places where we find the Old Testament scriptures in Aramaic, and this is one of them. In fact, 
chapter 2, verse 4, the second part of verse 4, all the way through chapter 7, verse 28, is in Aramaic. There are several passages, brief passages in Ezra and one verse in Jeremiah that is in Aramaic. But this passage of Scripture in Daniel is by far the largest. And we have to ask the question, why? And not only do we ask the question, but guess what? Scholars have been asking this question for years and years and years. Why is, is there something significant about this part of Daniel being in Aramaic? And I think there is. Though there is much debate about why this passage of Scripture is in Aramaic. I believe E.J. Young, great Old Testament scholar, has the best interpretation. Just like English today really is the international language, in Daniel's day, Aramaic was the international language. And what we find in chapter 2 all the way through chapter 7 is God showing that he is sovereign over world history. He is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. And he sovereignly works through human history and kings and men to bring about his purposes. And so E.J. Young believes, and I think this is very likely, that the use of Aramaic, the international language, is simply emphasizing that God is sovereign over the world and world history. And we see God's sovereignty working through even Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most powerful men in the world in these passages. Dr. Ferguson, Dr. St. Clair Ferguson writes this about God's sovereignty over worldly empires and especially as those worldly empires relates to God's people. Ferguson writes, God fulfills his purposes in the world in space and time. His kingdom is not established in otherworldly, mystical way, but through the lives of men and women in flesh and blood here and now. It comes into being in the world in the context of the rise and fall of empires in the midst of good days and bad days, good rulers and evil kings. And we will find at the end of chapter 2, the third message on chapter 2 in a couple of weeks, that God's kingdom, not man's, will stand and last for eternity. God's kingdom will triumph where all the kingdoms of men will fall and fail. And the events of Daniel 2 are showing Nebuchadnezzar about God's purposes, and God sovereignly uses Nebuchadnezzar, even his nightmare, to show forth just how sovereign he is in this world. And as we now have looked a little bit at the setting, the literature, the time frame, the history of just this portion of chapter 2, I want us to look now specifically at Daniel's reaction, Daniel's reaction, Nebuchadnezzar's reaction to the dream. Just by way of introduction for next week, we will look at Daniel's response, which is a beautiful response of faith. But today, it's Nebuchadnezzar's reaction. By the way, I make a distinction between a reaction and a response. 
a reaction is a knee-jerk, you know, self-protection. You're in my face, I'm going to punch you kind of a thing. And a response is a real thoughtful, measured, temperate, honorable, intelligent way of dealing with the situation. So Nebuchadnezzar reacted. You know, dreams in the ancient world are really understood as foreshadowing future events. If that's true about my disfigured, uh, hideous man's face coming in my face, I have no idea what's ahead of me. Uh, Maybe I should be more anxious. Just kidding. But dreams in the ancient world told the dreamer and those who interpreted something about the future. And when it came to a king's dream, it was of particular importance because it was not just about the king, it was about his empire, what the future of my empire might be. And so we have to ask the question then, how did Nebuchadnezzar react uh, to his dream? You know, I I have trouble still sleeping some nights, and, you know, there there will be times where there will be obviously something on my mind, and I just simply can't get to sleep, or if I get to sleep, I might wake up, I'm I'm burdened by, by, by something, please tell me I'm not alone. Is there anybody here who has trouble sleeping some nights? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry you have trouble sleeping some nights, but I feel so much better. Listen to this quote. The anxieties of daylight can become the monsters of darkness. Oh, man. I've, I've slept that. And so I have difficulty. You know, sometimes I know what's, what's a concern to me that keeps me awake. But sometimes I don't. Sometimes Renee will ask me, do you have a good night's sleep? No. She said, what's on your mind? I, go, I, I don't know. I can't think of a thing. But I have a restless night's sleep. Now, I do believe that even when I can't think of a thing that would cause me to have a restless night's sleep, there's probably something deep down in my inner person that's just percolating, and I just simply don't have knowledge of it, and that could very well be the case. But, you know, Nebuchadnezzar had this nightmare, and when we look at it from a merely human perspective, we could say there, there, there's, there might be something deep down in his, in his inner Nebuchadnezzar that was percolating that really caused him to have this sleeplessness. We, we might say, as, as the historical record very clearly shows, that in the early days of Nebuchadnezzar's empire, he did have all kinds of resistance as he was seeking to expand his kingdom all over the place, especially in the Palestine. And so I can imagine Nebuchadnezzar saying, oh my goodness, what's this army going to do? What are they going to do? We've got to have this strategy. So that, but you know what the ultimate reason is, as I've already said? It was God is, is the primary cause of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And we're not going to look at the content of the dream, but the fact that in verses 1 and 3, we find that Nebuchadnezzar's spirit was troubled, the text says. He was anxious. He couldn't sleep because of worry. And indeed, the text says, and sleep left him. We all can identify for the, I saw the hands. We can identify with Nebuchadnezzar. The content of his dream we'll get to in a couple of weeks, but how he reacted and the first is Nebuchadnezzar reacted and his reaction shows 
that he had a deep, deep and profound sense of insecurity. Here is the most, one of the most powerful men in the known world at that time. And he wakes up in a panic about the future of his kingdom. And so what did he do? He summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, so says the text. And I would suggest to you, just consider these, these four groups of, of people as the king's servants, his, his advisors, uh, those wise men that would, would be in some service to the, the king. We don't need to get too specific about who they were. But what is interesting, as we look at verse 13 we see that Daniel and his three friends are numbered among this group. That they're lumped in with these advisors as, as well. And so what was the king's request? As we see in verse 2, the, the, the king comes to them. And in verse 4 and 5, that he asked them to tell him the content of his dream. That would be like me coming to you without having told you at all about my nightmare about the disfigured man's face coming in mine. Me coming to you and saying, tell me, what is the content of the nightmare I had last night? These advisors had no clue. And yet Nebuchadnezzar says, you tell me, what is the content, what was the content of my dream? And of course, he commanded them to do this in verse 5. And he said, if you don't do it, then you will suffer death. In verse 6, if you do it, you will be rewarded. And they said, King, we can't tell you the content of the dream. But if you tell us the content of the dream, we will interpret it for you. And then we find in verse 7 that for a second time, the advisors say, King, if you tell us the content of the dream... We will be more than happy to interpret the dream for you. And so we, we, we see this going back and forth between Nebuchadnezzar the king commanding, demanding that his advisors tell him the content of the dream as well as interpret it, and the advisors saying, we can't. You tell us the content, we'll interpret it. And then in verses 8 and 9, the king accuses them of basically having a conspiracy with a bunch of words just to stall so that maybe his panic attack will pass and he'll forget about his dream and forget about the demand that he's placed upon them. But it's interesting that at the end of verse 9 of chapter 2, we discover the reason Nebuchadnezzar was requiring his advisors to tell him the content of his dream. Now, it's possible that Nebuchadnezzar forgot the content. I don't think that's likely because it impacted him at such a a deep level. But at the end of verse 9, we find Nebuchadnezzar saying, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was testing his advisors. And in his mind, he thought, if they can tell me the content of the dream, then these men are able tell me the interpretation of my dream so that I might better protect my kingdom from future calamity. And so that, for the most part, sets up 
Nebuchadnezzar's dream and his reaction uh, to the dream. And in verses 10 and 11, the Chaldeans, on behalf of the entire body of wise men, basically say this, King, you're asking us to do what only a God can do. We're mere men. And then we, and so here we find Nebuchadnezzar being paranoid and insistent upon having this dream not only recounted to him, but also interpreted. And perhaps you see along with me the deep, deep sense of insecurity that Nebuchadnezzar has with regards to the future of of his kingdom. All he had was that kingdom. All any man apart from God has is what he has in this world. And the problem with someone thinking and living by the motto, all I have is this world, is that the world is ever-changing. With the least little change in the stock market, one's 401k may go absolutely to zero. (laughs) There is no certainty in this world, is there? Okay, death and taxes, get it. But other than that, and here Nebuchadnezzar was, all he had was this world. And the horizons of all he had, according to this dream that was given by God, was all I have is threatened and is going to crumble. Do you see the insecurity there? You know, Nebuchadnezzar had it all with, with regards to how man might think about success. I mean, he had an empire, wealth, provisions, land, armies. He had servants. If he said, off with your head, off went your head. I mean, he had all kinds of power. But there's one thing he did not have that every human being that has ever lived or will live seeks, and it's peace. Why? Because peace does not come from this world. In fact, what comes from living one's life for this world is anxiety and insecurity. And Nebuchadnezzar is the poster child for this. So the first reaction is a deep, profound sense of insecurity. And the second reaction is anger. In verses 12 and 13, the king ordered that all of his wise men, including Daniel and his three friends, be put to death. Because in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, they were standing in his way. They were hindering him from knowing the future so that he could protect his kingdom. And if you're not going to help me, I'm going to deal with you (laughs) in an angry and hostile way. What happens when someone's idol is threatened? You start messing with something that an individual sees as his life, 
his purpose, his meaning, that which gives him significance. You start messing with that, I can, with a high level of certainty, say you will get a hostile, angry reaction. And it's true with every person, including most of us here, including me, that have struggled with idolatry. And his anger put all the wise men to death, seems almost comical, I mean, over the top, ridiculous, but it just simply shows the depth of his insecurity and the extremes to which he will go to protect that which he has determined gave him life, his idol, his kingdom. That was being threatened. The ancient Greek philosopher Protagoras, who lived uh, 490 to 421 B.C., is said to have coined this phrase, man is the measure of all things. Early humanists were just concerned about man's well-being, but over the years as humanism began to evolve, and especially in our, our more recent times, secular humanism, it has become atheistic, it has become a movement where man really is the measure of all things and God is to be written out of the picture completely. Everything is up to us. And here again, Nebuchadnezzar is the poster child of that sort of secular, humanistic way of living. All I have is what is in this world. And it's up to me to build it. It's up to me to keep it. And it's what gives me life. And God comes through a dream and says, Nebuchadnezzar, that which you're seeking to give you life, that which really is impressive by human standards, is destined to the, to the uh, burn pile. <laughs> and only my kingdom, God says, will triumph and stand uh, forever. Nebuchadnezzar was all about protecting his idol, and it was threatened. Now, I want to move to our third point and ask this question. What difference does Jesus make in my life and your life as we engage a society that is much like Nebuchadnezzar in that there is an idol that they are going to protect at all cost. And it just so happens that God's truth and God's people challenge that idol. And there's a confrontation. How does the gospel work in us that we would not react with insecurity or anger, but that we would respond with being fully secure in Jesus and even loving our enemies. So first, those who seek to live life apart from God will react out of their insecurity in an angry and hostile way. That's the principle, one principle that we see in these 13 verses of Daniel chapter 1. And Nebuchadnezzar gives us insight into the realities of our own day. As as we are engaging 
society and culture that senses its idol is being challenged by God's people. The worldly person, like Nebuchadnezzar, is at their core insecure. They have nothing that would promote security and peace about the future because of how uncertain this world really is. And so we can say that about the people of this world, that the sum total of their existence is this world. They really have no peace about the future. They are insecure and anxious and worried, although they may put up a good front. They may appear as though I'm bold, I'm in charge, what I've built really is fantastic and it's going to last. They may try to dull the pain of anxiety and insecurity through materialism, through the seeking of power, through the building of a reputation, but you strip all of that away and you get right down to the core of existence, they are scared about the future, as was Nebuchadnezzar. So therefore, when we challenge all they have, what gives them life, we should expect a hostile and angry reaction from them that flows out of their basic core insecurity as people who seek to live life apart from God and in many cases in direct opposition to God and rebellion against Him. I want to make a qualification. In my opinion, there are many people in our society today that are seeking to live life apart from God and are living in opposition to God and rebellion against God, but they're really nice pagans. You know, they, they, they really don't want to make Christians give up their Christianity. They just want to be accepted. They want to be able to live their life like they want to live their life. If they want to be homosexual, they can be homosexual, and they won't be judged and condemned, and they can go to the grocery store, and they can do this, and they can do that. But if a Christian doesn't you know, want to marry them, then don't marry them. I'll go get somebody who will. If a Christian doesn't want to bake a cake for them, they might say, well, I'll walk down the street to a baker who wants to bake a cake for me. And so they're, they're not militant, they're, they're not radical, they're not in your face. They're just simply nice pagans that, that want to have a nice life and want to coexist with nice Christians. I think there are people like that in our world today. But I'm really directing my, my remarks, for the most part, to an element of our culture that is not like that. In my opinion... There is a radical, militant aspect to our culture that has an agenda to eradicate God from the world's mindset, to eradicate the church from the globe. Their idol is, I have a view of how life is to be, and life is to be without God, And without those stinking Christians that are constantly promoting godliness, they need to go away. Now, you may think that I'm being a little sensitive. You may think that I'm being 
a little reactionary. You may think all kinds of things about me for saying this, and I accept that, but I believe it's true. Because all you have to do is look at, at what's happened in recent days to see that while there may be some nice pagans out there that we can, you know, go play golf with and have a great time, there is a militant, radical element that is bent on destroying the church of Jesus Christ. And they're angry people like Nebuchadnezzar. Well, I want to tell you something that um, I can identify with that radical element that's angry because I get angry too when people mess with my idols. And when people mess with things that I believe give me life, I have restless nights and I can be pretty nasty responding. You identify with that? You don't have to admit it. I'll be the only bad guy here today. You know, we, we, we need to see that we, we turn from Jesus. And my faith has found a resting place. We sang that and it talked about, you know, not seeking the things of this world. Well, we do seek the things of this world. And we know that they're not going to give us life, but, but we seek them. And, and we can create idols. Calvin, the heart's idol factory, we, we, we do that. And people start messing with our idols. We can get pretty angry. Ask Renee <laughs> about me. But you know what? Jesus makes a difference. He makes a difference because he comes to the place and brings us to the place of seeing our idols and he forces us to deal with them, to confess them, to repent of both idolatry and anger. And he makes us nice Christians. He deals with our anger through repentance and through restoration. But Jesus makes a difference in another way. You know, how do we respond to the enemy who we know is seeking to destroy the church and is just angry at us and is demonstrating anger and hostility towards us. I mean, we should expect it. What does Jesus say? You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And loving like the perfect love of the heavenly Father, loving those who are hostile towards us because we're standing for God's truth and against wickedness, and they view it as we're attacking their idol. Loving them as God loves can only come about through the power of the gospel. So we need the gospel 
for our, our own forgiveness for our idolatry and anger, and we need the gospel to love our enemy and to be kind and gracious to them. See, Jesus makes a difference. And the second way Jesus makes a difference is not only with respect to standing before the hostile, angry reaction of those in our culture that are bent on destroying the church, but he makes a difference when we really stop and think what their life is really like. You know, the principle is this, that those who live apart from God like Nebuchadnezzar are at the very core insecure, fearful, frightened, scared people. And you can tell by their reaction to being challenged by God's truth. We sometimes fall into a state of insecurity as redeemed people, don't we? When we turn from Jesus and and try to seek other things and those other things don't satisfy us, those other things don't promote peace, those other things promote insecurity, anxiety, and frustration, and we do that. I was uh, restless one night this this week. I, just, I feel like I'm gonna I feel like this is Doctor Phil. I'm just confessing everything. Sorry, <laughs> but but I really had a had a had a. I've never watched Doctor Phil by the way, but I just heard that. Um, I had a real restless night this week, and, and I woke up, and I was just burdened, and I went through my morning routine, just kind of. And boy, it was early because I woke up early. Uh, you know my story. Sometimes I get up at 3 o'clock, and I just, boy, it makes for a long day, especially if there's a session meeting that night. And so, uh, you know, I, I was just so struggling, and I, I got to thinking, this is absolutely ri- ri- ridiculous. I, I, I was sensing anxiety. I, 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 was, I had a sense of insecurity, and, and I was preparing for this sermon thinking, oh, no. <laughs> I'm Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> What's going on? And that, that created more insecurity and, 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 and more anxiety. It was really a rough morning. Thankfully, Renee was asleep. She doesn't know what goes on in the morning. And then it was as if Jesus came to me. And all of a sudden, I was, just, I, I was reading... Um, my devotional and began thinking, wait, wait, wait a minute, Tim. Why are you so at not at peace? Why are you so anxious? Why are you insecure? I'll tell you why. Because there was an idol that was being challenged and you got frustrated about it. And all of a sudden, I said, Lord, forgive me of idolatry once again. And then this is what happened. I began recounting the blessings that I have as a child of God. Salvation in Jesus Christ, God's love, a a hope and a future. I have a fantastic family. I'm in a fantastic church. I have the privilege of being a part of ministry. And And I began recounting the blessings when upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed. When you are discouraged, thinking all is lost. Come on, count your many blessings. 
Name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Count your many blessings. And I began counting my blessings, and the anxiety went away. The insecurity dissolved, not because I was ignoring them, because the humanists would say, to say, count your many blessings, name them one by one, that's for weak people. No, it's the reality of living in relationship with the sovereign king of the universe who even works through crazy rulers like Nebuchadnezzar and their nightmares to bring about his purposes. And his purpose for you and me is blessing, a hope and a future, not calamity. God's blessing brought me out of a man-centered worldview to once again climb the heights and to see the the truth and the reality from his perspective. And here's my point. We have the unbelievable privilege when we begin feeling insecure to count our many blessings and those who live in opposition to God do not have that all they can count is what they have made nothing more they have no hope they have no real future of blessing All they have is insecurity and despair. And we should pity them. Let me say that again. We should pity them. Not become angry at them. Not to try to strike back at them. But to respond to them in love and kindness and to pity them. And to see what a glorious blessing we have to live under God, who is all about blessing his people. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. You see, Nebuchadnezzar's dream shows us something about about humanity, and it is that humanity is basically insecure, and humanity is going to respond with anger when their idol is challenged. But the gospel declares that Jesus makes us different. He, first of all, brings us to the place of repentance over our own idolatry and anger. We can be just like the vilest sinner in this world. And he also gives us the capacity to love like God loves, even our enemy. And he also brings us to the place of saying that we too can flee and grasp the things of this world that bring us to have insecurity and anxiety But Jesus makes a difference for you and me because we can repent of that and begin counting the blessings of being a child of God. 
And you see, the world may wake up in a panic, screaming at the top of their voice like I did with my nightmare in fright and panic over the future. And what they desperately need is a mom or a dad to come to them and to embrace them and to say, listen, my dear child, fear not, you are beloved by me. That's what they need. They'll never have that apart from Christ. And we should pity them. But for you and me, we're able, even when we awake in a panic, to feel the embrace of Jesus, who reminds us yet again, you are a beloved child. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you. Listen to this. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, as we will see, is going to crumble and fall. God's kingdom, we will see, is going to stand in triumph. We have absolutely nothing to fear. We have absolutely nothing for which to be insecure about in this culture that seems to be bent on destroying the church. Why? When we get to the third message, we'll find the reason why. Because there's a little stone that will stand forever. Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice in who you are, and we pray that you might fill our hearts and our souls with joy and faith, and that we would trust you in the midst of these trying days. Father, we pray that you would give us the capacity to pity those in this world that have no hope and have no future, that we would seek that they might come to know Jesus and find that hope, and that you might also give us a capacity to have loving kindness towards them, even though it seems so counterintuitive that we would love our enemies, but that's the gospel, and we ask you to grant us that. At the same time, Father, make us wise, knowing that persecution will likely come, and that in the midst of that, that we would not struggle with insecurity, but that we, we would rest in the truth and the reality that your kingdom will stand forever. And by your grace, we're part of it. We thank you for these truths. In Christ's name, amen.